right. So we're back for round two, waiting for a sign, part two. If you weren't able to be with us on Friday, the audio message will go up later today. Please download it and listen to it if you're able to. We spoke about waiting for a sign before we would trust in the Lord with our little faith. And we looked at how quickly people and his disciples forgot about these amazing miracles. For example, when he fed 5,000 people. We considered how he calls us to turn our eyes up from our worldly concerns that brings us only to seek God when we want something, but to worship him for who he is. The Pharisees asked Jesus several times for a sign to prove himself to them. Even after all the healing, after all the miracles over nature and over the demons, Jesus once again he rebukes them in what the passage we're going to look today, alluding to his death and resurrection as the only true meaningful miracle to authenticate his purpose and his mission. So we're going to ask the question again today, are we waiting for a sign to trust God? So for our scripture reading, let's read from Matthew chapter 12, that's not our main passage this morning, but uh, it's just for us to keep in mind as we do look at our main passage. But Matthew chapter, chapter 12, okay, from verse 38, Matthew chapter 12 from verse 38, then some scribes and Pharisees said to him, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up in judgment of this generation and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Now one greater than Jonah is here. Lord, please be with me as I preach this message. Please be with us as we learn from it and apply it. We thank you for your word that you have revealed yourself to us so assuredly. Amen. So, let me just uh, get to our passage, Matthew chapter 16. He rebukes the Pharisees again. You can follow along in Matthew 16, but I will just... Um, Explain it as I go along. It starts from verse 1. He rebukes the Pharisees once again. Once again, this time the Sadducees came along 
And they joined in and they said, Teacher, give us a sign from heaven. In other words, prove to us that all these miracles you've been doing is really from heaven and not from some other power because just a few verses before that they accuse him of being empowered by Satan. So they're at it again. In Mark, it records that Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit. You know, I sigh a lot. So don't mind me when I sigh, okay? I sigh when I've added too little milk with my penutro. But normal people sigh when there is great distress in their life, when the problem doesn't go away, when there is no clear solution. Imagine what kind of grief would make Jesus sigh deeply in his spirit. How vexing these Pharisees were, how wicked their hearts were. So they asked, show us something conclusive this time. Jesus was only human. <laughs> he was also human. And he rebukes them sharply. He calls them a wicked and adulterous generation. Once again, you could almost wonder if this and the event we just read weren't the same event, but they weren't. Adulterous. You know, Hosea comes to mind. It's a book that speaks about the nation of Israel's constant pull by the pagan gods of the surrounding nations, by their constant want and desire to integrate uh, their culture and to not be separated like God commanded them. God talks about this as um, being unfaithful, that they were sleeping around with the other nations committing adultery against him. I don't think it's coincidence that idolatry sounds very similar. But that's what they were doing. And that's what Jesus was accusing them of once again. You adulterous generation. You've made idols out of everything. Money, status, whatever it may be. Instead of worshipping the one true God. Constantly wanting signs. He says that they're so good at trying to interpret the signs of nature. It says, um, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red and in the morning it will be foul weather today for the sky is red also. Um, you hypocrites, <laughs> you can discern the face of the sky but you cannot discern the signs of the times. You're so good at trying to figure out the events of the future, trying to read the sky and you're so diligent with that, if only you were as diligent at interpreting Scripture and looking for the signs of the times, the prophets that over and over and over in incredible detail described the coming of the Lord. You should be able to recognize what is happening. 
yet you still want proof. You're so concerned <laughs> with worldly things. You're, you're missing the point once again. He says, the only sign that you will receive is that of Jonah. So there is no faith in what God has said. You want more proof. In the sign of Jonah, he was trapped in the heart of the sea, and the Bible, uh, Jesus himself makes that allegorical connection. Um, just as Jonah was trapped in the fish, so too will the Son of Man be, be buried, be in the earth. And just as he was brought back out and then preached a message of repentance and faith to Gentiles of all people, I'm sure he gave his testimony when he was speaking to Nineveh. Look, guys, I've had a rough week. You will not believe what happened to me. So too, Jesus will be raised from the dead in preaching a message of repentance and faith to the world. And we will be called to repent. You see, the fact that Jesus is alive today is the surest sign of God's promise that he had said, what he had set out to do is true. Everything that he said, everything that he did, everything that we believe and do now is authenticated in that one act, his resurrection. If he stayed dead, nothing that he said would be true. But he didn't. That's the only sign we need <laughs> to place our faith in him wholly and completely. Not in incremental measures as the people of the time did. Later on that day, probably um, the encounter with Pharisees prompted Jesus to warn his disciples about them. Mark even includes Herod, the political leader of the day, preaching the gospel and ministering to the in the name of Jesus Christ will bring persecution. That's what he said later in, in the chapter, verse 5. But when his disciples um, reached the side, they had forgotten um, to take bread. And then Jesus said to them, Take heed, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He was saying, Do not relent, do not compromise the truth in the face of persecution. If you've ever attempted to bake bread, you'll know that a huge, massive lump of dough only needs a few grains of yeast, basically. It's a very small amount. You know, I've said before that Jesus and the Pharisees shared the same doctrine, but I might have confused uh, unintentionally some people. What I meant was that they, the Pharisees claimed at least to hold the Torah and the rest of the Tanakh, what we would call the Old Testament, in complete uh, authoritative, this is the inspired word of God. 
That is what they claim. And that is what Jesus believed. That is what he taught from. So it is the inspired word of God. But their interpretation of it and their application of it was grossly mistwisted, uh, twisted and, and, um, and misinformed and misplaced. So that's the difference. He warned them about these people of his day, and certainly the warning applies to us in a different way today. Yet his disciples, again, only thought about their immediate circumstances. They thought, oh no. In Mark, it records that they had one loaf of bread on board the ship. And they said, maybe Jesus upset with us because we didn't remember to get food. What are we going to eat now? How are we going to share this one loaf of bread between all of us? It says, when Jesus perceived it, he said, Oh, you of little faith. How many times have we heard that in the message on, on Friday when he was doing the miracle of, of the loaves? In Mark, he says, having your hearts are hardened. It's interesting how he equates a hardened heart to a lack of faith. That a hardened heart prevents us from perceiving and accepting and acting on the truth. So, it it's really is... You can almost hear, maybe it's just me, but you can almost hear the hurt in Jesus' words. Why reason amongst yourselves that it is because you have brought no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves? Of the 5,000, how many baskets did you collect? And of the seven loaves of the 4,000, he performed another miracle where he fed another 4,000 people. How is it that you do not understand that I spake to you not concerning the bread, that I spoke to you, sorry, not concerning the bread, but that you should be aware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Are you serious right now with the one loaf of bread? I'm trying to teach you Something bigger. <laughs> and you're worried about what are we going to eat? Don't you remember what I did with bread? Why are you still lacking faith in what I am able to do and who I am? Our third point, receiving our daily bread. I want us to look, we've been looking at bad examples, little faith, learning from the mistakes of others. But I want to look at an example of, of lots of faith. A man asked Jesus to perform a miracle for him, but he understood faith and what that looks like. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 8. All the way back to Matthew chapter 8 from verse 5, from verse 5, 
When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home, sick with paralysis, terribly tormented. In the other Gospels, he records that he cared for the servant dearly. Jesus said, I will come and heal him. Again, the story is recorded in Luke and John. They give a bit more detail. They say that the Jewish leaders actually um, came to Jesus um, and they gave a good testimony of the centurion. They said he's a good man and, he's, and he helps us and he's good to the Jewish people. So please do see to his request. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. It says that some of the centurion's servants actually went ahead of him to request of Jesus, but somewhere along the line, um, they did meet face to face. Um, he was concerned about Jesus' reputation. I don't want you to come under my roof because it will cause problems for you. I'm a Roman centurion. Um, I, I, I'm not worthy even <laughs> for that. And this is what he says. But speak the word only and my servant will be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, go. And he goes. And to another, come. And he comes. And to my servant, do this. And he does it. And Jesus heard it. He was amazed. And he said to those who followed, truly I say to you, I have found no such great faith. No, not in Israel. He says, Firstly, this man was not Jewish, so Jesus would not have normally crossed paths with this man. He went to seek out Jesus, as many did. But the Jewish leaders gave a good testimony of this man. Likely that this centurion was among the people of Israel, and he read or um, became aware of the God of, of the scriptures and, and revered him and believed <laughs> and so showed favor towards God's people. And when he heard about Jesus, um, he did not hesitate to seek help for his servant, not for himself. So there's a few things we can note from this man already that he showed fruit, that his faithfulness, that his faith produced faithfulness. Corleen actually said that on Friday when she was summarizing Friday's message, and I thought that, that was very uh, apt. Faith produces faithfulness. He produces fruit, maybe not in the same way that a believer is sanctified by the Spirit, but certainly if you place faith in what God has said, it produces change in an, in an Old Testament sense. He had, um, he had humility when approaching Jesus. His faith was marked 
by humility. Lord, I am not worthy that you should come into my house. He understood the relationship the Romans had with the Jews and and uh, he understood who Jesus was, even perhaps among the people of the nation, a prophet. Um, certainly, I believe that he knew Jesus was more than that based on what he says. And he had humility, knowing how lowly he is. Thirdly, his faith had reverence. And we're going to look at that now, knowing how great God is. He says, Lord, I am a man of authority also. I understand what it means to have authority. I don't have to go and fight the battles myself. I don't have to go and micromanage the tasks or do the tasks myself. I can simply, with my words, command and it gets done. I don't have to move from this chair. With my words, I can command it, and it gets done. So too is it with you, Lord, when you show power over nature, when you show power over the sick and over the demons, you are in authority. You don't need to come to my house and touch my servant. I know what it is to have authority. You have that authority over all creation. You can just say, and it gets done. He, under, he understood the greatness of God, who God is. And Jesus commends his faith. He actually turns to the very Jewish crowd that was following him, very likely not happy with what Jesus had to say. Oh, how dare he say this Roman has more faith than us? I'm sure that came up. His faith was marked with confidence, lastly. He knew God was able. And if Jesus said no, for whatever reason, I'm sure this man would have not doubted his ability or his timing like we looked at on Friday. But with faith submitted to that decision. And I'm sure once he heard about the resurrection. I'm sure he didn't have any trouble placing faith in Christ. I would like to believe that. The, son of Jonah, the sign of Jonah was that Jesus, through the resurrection, would authenticate his earthly ministry. I'm so tired of hearing people claiming all kinds of rubbish in God's name. Judging the circumstances of others by saying, well, if you had more faith, maybe things would go better. And then have the narrow-minded audacity to meet on this amazing day and celebrate the resurrection. They have no idea what this day is really about. I would never claim to speak for Jesus or know what Jesus would say, but I see some similarities between the lack of faith in Jesus' day and many churches today. Hardened hearts, always wanting a sign, very keen on interpreting it, yet they have no idea 
what it really means. Still living with such a worldly focus. I see people use the Bible, especially these last two years. I've been bombarded by it from every side. Use the Bible to motivate political movements, rationalize ideologies, and exploit others for personal gain. Do not let that be you or me. This morning, are you waiting for a sign? Or do you trust in the knowledge of who God is and what has already been revealed? Let your faith inform your faithfulness by reading your Bible, doing good to others, serving and caring for your fellow believers. What is hindering our faith? The only sign that we need to place our faith completely and fully in Christ is today, his resurrection, as he has said. And it's not, it has nothing to do with him choosing. He, he appoints, he chooses. The, the Pharaoh, the disciples, were constantly berated for their little faith. Yet he used them to build his, his church. Not this Roman who had more faith than anyone in Israel. So the measure of your faith has nothing to do with blessing in your life. But it has everything to do with our walk with the Lord. Let it not be hindered and let us not keep waiting for God to prove himself before we can place our faith in what he has said, in who he is, except today, in his resurrection.